let me introduce our panelists. So the first one here is uh, Ting Zhang. Uh, Ting is a thought leader on UK-China trade and investment, and her experience has been called by both UK and Chinese governments, business and think tank alike. So Ting is also a successful entrepreneur who launched Crayfish back in 2017, a digital platform helping business to succeed in China and beyond. Welcome, and my first question to you is, I know you're very passionate about helping a wider community between UK and China, especially in the private sector. Tell us a bit more of your personal journey and how that led you to start Crayfish. Thank you, Jay, for the nice introduction. Hello, everyone. Last week was my 25th year in the UK. So I arrived in Cambridge in 1997 to study at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And then I had a short banking career in the city of London. Then I came back to Cambridge to join my husband, setting up a family and my last consultant business, which was very much a big company such as British Telecom, it was Backsavers, the likes of that, to look at China. In that time, China just joined WTO in 2001. So suddenly, everyone's excited about China, and there's not a lot of expertise around. So I end up providing a lot of strategic consulting to FTSE 100 companies, local government agencies, European government agencies, and even Wall Street financial institutions and hedge funds. Then back about 2015, 2014, I started thinking, it seems that more smaller businesses, and of course also scale-ups, tech companies, are looking at China with a lot more opportunities. Those companies are really the engines for the economy, and they wanted to tap into China, but where did they start? On the other hand, there's a lot of Chinese speakers, very talented Chinese professionals in the UK, across the world, who has the expertise to help them, sometimes at less cost than a senior consultant like myself at the time. So inspired by Uber and the likes of Upwork, I start thinking, can I use technology? Can I innovate on my business model. So Crayfish was the answer. I set up Crayfish in 2016 and launched the platform in 2017. So since then, I've been working with companies different sizes to connect them with Chinese talent, business, and investors. So in essence, we are innovative in our business model. So that's a quick introduction. So talking about innovators, let's move on to Sarah. Sarah is the co-founder and CEO of InfoUse, the digital platform that helps battery supply chain players to manage, measure, and improve their sustainability. Sarah also was part of the World Economic Forum's Global Battery Alliance and Greenhouse Gas Working Group. She has advised the UK government COP roundtable on battery supply chains. And in her spare time, Sarah is also really passionate about UK-China relations. And uh, I shall say, Sarah speaks fluent Chinese and has lived in <laughs> Beijing and uh, Taipei before. My first question to you is, in your own words, tell us a bit more, like how did your China experience and your interest in battery supply chains fit together? 
when I was living in Beijing, before I'd moved there, everybody talks about how like China is the production capital of the world. But when I was living there, the thing I most realized was actually how it's also the consumption capital of the world. And that was when I ended up getting very interested in how supply chains work and how China's supply chains interact with global supply chains. One of the challenges, how do we set the standards for what a sustainable supply chain looks like? But then the other challenge is once you've set the standards, how do you actually implement those standards and what tools do you need in order to do that? And so that's what we're doing now at Infius is building the technology tools that can support the industry to be able to analyze and manage the sustainability of their supply chains. And so still very much interweaving the China angle, given that China has such a globally important role to play in battery supply chains, but also my interest in making sure that we solve some of the biggest problems that are going to face the world in the coming decades. Brilliant. I want to introduce Colin. So Colin, Colin Tan is the director of operations for Task Park Newcastle, which is the first international task park fully owned by Task Holding. By the way, that is China's largest innovation ecosystem. They have over 300 bases in almost every major city in China and also expanding quickly internationally. So I think calling your personal experience and the, the journey of Task Park. Thanks very much for having me here. I'm glad to be back in Cambridge because my British journey really began here. And let me tell you a bit more about Task Park. Yes, it is a, a spin-out of Tsinghua University, Science Park, about 30 years ago, to build the Silicon Valley area. And we are now in every major city. We are one of the largest investors in China. We have a presence in Cambridge Science Park. Up in Newcastle, we work with Barclays Ecolabs. And Ecolabs are the largest incubator network for the UK. And so together, we are the largest UK and China incubator network. We also have a few other international branches. You know, Singapore, Singapore government gave us a, a, a presence there. Malaysia, Thailand, I think Belgium just opened up. And it all started here in, in the UK. Myself, uh, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, early stage ecosystem builder as well. I did work for the Northern Powerhouse. We have a fantastic panel here. We have Sarah presenting startup and uh, entrepreneurs. We have Colin convening and building the ecosystem. And also we have Ting working with a lot of innovators. Question back to Ting is, <laughs> you've been working with big corporate incumbents and now your, your focus is mainly working with small startups or SMEs. So when it comes to the UK-China collaboration, where do you see the opportunities for small business, especially in the areas of Viratech? Can you give us a couple of examples? I think good news is that uh, despite all this geopolitics and uh, the anti-China rhetoric, at business level, there's still a lot of interest. For smaller companies, the opportunities, China would be, for example, you can use the market to test your product mm -hmm. and you can use the market to get funding. And also, some of the time, because Chinese market is so big, they can actually scale up much more quickly than you would typically be doing in a smaller market. If you look at 10 years ago, I would normally say to a smaller company, don't worry about China yet. You need to establish your foothold in your own market before you can actually go to China. But now it's different. Now, even at the beginning, they can have a Chinese investor that help them to scale up much more quickly. So that's changed. And then for the more established companies, then China is a really big market for export. 
particularly in the environment sector. If I give an example, one of our clients is a UK a solar technology company. So they, they can improve a lot more efficiency through their technology innovation. So just recently, we helped them find a distributor in China. Crayfish raised some money to develop our tailored platform. So we do have a technology platform that's very smart that can enable the clients to do a lot of things in China without actually traveling there. And that is very important now with the continuous yeah. travel restrictions. So this particular solar company managed to find a distributor last month and now scaling in the Chinese market because in the past, they always look at the US and US is a big market. But now they're saying, actually, look at how China is now embracing solar and renewable energy. Their market share in China is tiny, even as well in their company overall sales. So that's, you know, that's a big gap for them. So this is what we talk to the UK technology company, particularly environment tech. China is the big market that they can't ignore. Yeah. I think a few takeaways, the sheer amount of the Chinese market over there, which could help to scale up, or even for early stage technology, China could be a test bed. So it helps to get some feedback and to iterate your technology. So and the third point is in China, the users are quite tech savvy, especially yes. the younger generation. So that's probably when it together makes China quite attractive, even for those small business. Sarah, you are one of those small startups. Have you started thinking about expanding to China? Yeah, it's on the horizon for sure, <laughs> but it's not where we're starting. We're starting in the UK and Europe because that is where, from a battery market, we see the biggest demand for mm. sustainability because of the EU battery regulation. But 80% of lithium refining happens mm. in China, so China is a huge component of that. But I also think the other side of collaborating with China is the amount of Chinese battery market players who have now entered Europe who are trying to figure out how do they adjust to these European regulations, sustainability requirements and so on, which aren't the same as those that they have to adjust to in, in their local markets. And so I actually see that as one of the big areas for us to potentially collaborate initially is with Chinese players in the European market. And then gradually that then sets the foothold to being able to expand into China and Asia. Rarely a week goes by without us hearing some issues with the supply chain around child labor, around the indigenous community, protest, those social aspects of that. Are, are you seeing those challenges in the EV battery supply chain? The battery supply chain itself has anything between you know, five to ten steps across different components within the battery. And of those steps, they're spread globally around the world. So you could have nickel coming from Indonesia, lithium coming from Argentina, cobalt coming from the DRC. And so for the battery makers and the car makers at the end of the supply chain, they have very limited visibility into what's actually happening across their supply chain. Because of that, they also have a huge risk in their supply chain. And you're seeing that now with a lot of the, the car makers having to cut the production of their electric vehicles by around 50% because of supply chain challenges. The interesting thing from the China angle is actually China recognized that this is one of the biggest threats to their transition towards electric vehicles like five or ten years before Europe and the rest of the world's that. And so actually when you look at the Chinese battery players and their supply chains, they actually tend to have vertically integrated, which means that they own or they have very close relationships with the players across their supply chain. So if you look at 
the DRC in cobalt, actually the majority of those mines are either owned or controlled by Chinese companies because they recognize that that was one of the biggest challenges to them. But when it comes to the sustainability impacts, social impacts from child labor to digital community rights to fair working conditions and so on, these are all impacts that very much affect the battery supply chain today on top of environmental impacts like deforestation. Four companies who are battery makers or car makers they are now in this position where they recognize that supply chain sustainability is an essential part of them being able to do business and being able to sell their electric vehicles. How would you advise those SMEs to navigate this very complex geopolitical environment? So if you have limited resources, there's no point making a China desk or something. Go for the Chinese who are here. I think the SMEs need to see some whatever opportunities you have. We are building a China-UK ecosystem. I really disagree with this idea that it's like we are a bridge. You know, I don't, I don't like this metaphor of a bridge because a bridge kind of suggests that there's one side and then there's other side. When in fact, it's more like a, a kind of overlap, you know. Lots of SMEs are, or, or even big companies that come to me and they, they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to do China. And they don't have Chinese-speaking stuff, which is weird because there's so many Chinese students here. Why not just get an intern or something? So it's the second thing, research the environment. Please research China. The third thing is that there is an underestimation of how large China is. You can imagine a million, but you can't really imagine a billion, <laughs> right? China is very complex and very large, and there are many nuances across the different cities as well. And you have to spot some opportunities. I would say engage them in Europe, in the UK. Every major Chinese company that's over here, uh, believe me, they have much larger resources over there. And they can help you. So there are many, many opportunities for SMEs and startups here. Engage the Chinese partner on multiple fronts, IP, local governments, your supply chain. And that brings me to the fifth tip. China is not transactional. The US is transactional. If you want to get an investment, you do your half-hour pitch, right? And, and you get a decision one month or three months, okay? China is not like that. It's a relationships-driven environment of humanity. And this is a very important aspect of Chinese business culture. It's something we need to understand as we enter into this overlap. That's a really good point. Thanks for debunking one of mm. the myths of doing business in China. I was wondering, um, Ting, expert on that, have a lot of experience helping companies. Is there any other misconceptions or myths you can help to debunk as well? I think for many technology companies, particularly innovators, the first thing to come to them is IP. Am I safe to go to China? Would they steal my intellectual property? So that is the biggest one to be debunked. In fact, China now tops number one in the world in terms of number of patents China files. It has been number one for a couple of years now. That means the Chinese companies are also worried about their own intellectual property being stolen. So the government has again and again to say protect intellectual property and we've seen a lot of things happening on that. Now in China we work with our partners for intellectual property exchange platform. So there's technology available there to actually license intellectual property as well as commercialize them. That is actually a lot of opportunities 
particularly in a climate change area and then an environment. So I think intellectual property is one of the biggest challenge, but it can be solved. The most important is working with the right partner, so they are there to help you. And coming back to China provides funding. If you have a strategic Chinese investor to take you into China, they will help protect you. And that is one of the best way to pr protect IP. So but of course, another one uh, is not to be debunked is the travel at the moment. We have to find more sustainable ways to do business with China rather than flying there. And so using those digital ways to do business in China. I'll give a quick example. So for those who want to set up an office in China used to be you have to be there in person for the bank to allow you to open a bank account. But we found that there's two banks in China now that allow you to get digital signature or they do that on video. So that's actually a big uh, game changer because otherwise the companies cannot set up the office. For those who already setting up in China, the HR is actually a challenge. Imagine the UK bosses typically goes there three times a year and now he can't go anymore. So he doesn't know what's happening in China mm -hmm. and the, the China team feel like, oh, we are being ignored by the headquarters. So that kind of thing is also happening. So we help some of the clients to put better HR system in China, so Chinese team feel closer, but in the meantime, giving the management a better control. And so these are the challenges that happening because of the travel restriction, but are being solved as we work along with these companies. I do want to invite any questions from the audience. Hello, my name is Harriet Hannibal. I work at Cambridge at the Centre for Carbon Credits. I'm just wondering if you have some advice in terms of how to negotiate or to navigate rather the right orientation environment in terms of nature when we're thinking about environmental tech. So in some parts of the world, agroforestry is not seen as really that constructive. I think that different countries in the world have different ways of organising their own understanding and valuing. Right? and rationalizing. There is a great knowledge, a great understanding, great awareness of the environment as being important. China is also creating all these policies, right? For clean energy, for sustainability, for urbanization, for all these things, there is a value of this topic. And the opportunity is collaborating. Any thoughts from other panelists? China is actually learning a lot on those areas, I believe, because it went through a rapid economic uh, growth period where the government was thinking at the times it doesn't matter we pollute we will sort out later we have to grow first that was probably a decade ago thinking now of course the green development is highly on the agenda so they are much more careful of polluting now but I think that China is overall still quite lagging behind again that's why ISL is here to champion that knowledge sharing and to get the international leaders to come to the same level. And if I can just add a bit from the CISL perspective, I think if you look in China or other countries, the climate target is always the high priority. It's as if as long as we achieve net zero, all the problems solved. So at CISL, we're also sort of shifting the narrative from solely focus on climate target, net zero, to something what we call people, nature, and climate. People comes first. How can we put humanity right in the heart of this climate agenda or net zero agenda? Those are the social fabric. 
So it's not just the target. China has the target, you know, 2013, 2060, reaching net zero. But there's a lot of changes from the social aspect underpin that. Until we can really bring people into the whole conversation, we still got a long way to go. And I think at CISL, we're trying to championing not just the climate target, but also the whole narrative shift as well. There was quite a lot of talk about globalised supply chains. The discourse around batteries in the UK is very much around developing a kind of national innovation system that isn't dependent on, on China. How does this actually impact sustainability ambitions and innovation? Is this a very difficult time in which to work in these areas of tech? when the push is very much away from that kind of interdependence and globalised supply chains. One of the key drivers of this is, of course, regulation. The EU battery regulation that's already in place and coming into place in the next couple of years is really mandating on sustainability of supply chains at a broader context rather than just looking at carbon footprint and savings there. If the regulation comes in and demands it, we are going to need to take into account these other environmental and social impacts. It's very simple and easy to say the ultimate goal is 100% electric vehicles and zero carbon mobility but actually we can all imagine ourselves getting to that point and then realizing the other environmental social catastrophes we've made along the way and realizing that we're just replacing one technology with another technology that in some ways is slightly better but perhaps it's not better in other ways and I think that's where the role of innovation comes in we're already foreseeing these challenges and there is a huge amount of scope for change in order to make that happen but because of the global nature of supply chains, that's where you need collaboration across the supply chain in order to enable that. Even if you're a battery manufacturer in the UK, chances are 50% of your suppliers are based in China. So if you want to make sure that you're complying with even the European or the UK regulation, you need to make sure that you can work with your Chinese suppliers. So I think there's going to be no option but to increasingly collaborate. And then the second step is then to look at, okay, where we can't collaborate, then there might be more onshoring. But I think there's also the reality of the cost competitiveness that it's need to keep in mind. I'm going to draw this panel discussion to a conclusion. This morning we talked about how to collaborate and also compete with China. Personally, I think it really begs the question when it comes to com com competition and collaboration, how much of this technology advance is a public good? We all know global challenge needs global solution. How much is that is crucial to the national ad advantage in terms of cybersecurity or energy security? Where does that line draw? That's probably the big question. And uh, I don't have the answer to that yet. As I mentioned, this week, this event is part of the China Week, and we feel absolutely privileged to collaborate with King's Lao China Institute on this event. And of course, China Week is a week-long program. There are a lot of fantastic events happening during the rest of this week. Go to China Week website and find more about the program. And also at CISL, we have the UK Centre for Sustainability Innovation, which recently launched. And we have our WeChat here as well. If you are keen to follow us, especially what's going on with China, please feel free to scan the code and follow us on WeChat. And then please do join me, give a round of applause to our fantastic panellists. Thanks, everyone.